overuse meetings instead of using um, asynchronous um, forms of communication. So all of these things, and of course, there is the issue of in, uh, inclusion or lack of inclusion, not feeling respected, uh, lack of diversity, both of identity, but also of perspective. So all of those things made me um motivated. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce herself. Uh, Tosca, please go ahead. Hello, everybody. I am Tosca Bruno van Vijwijken. That is a mouthful. And I am uh, currently an independent consultant. I am the owner of a small consulting practice called Five Oaks Consulting, which is named, in case you're wondering what a weird name that is, it's named after my Dutch last name, uh, Van Vijwijken, which is difficult to pronounce. But in Dutch, it it literally means I am called Tosca of the Five Oak Trees. And I assume, Morris, you're going to ask me in a moment to tell a little bit more about myself. So I'll keep it there for now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and as as most of the listeners know, I'm, I'm also from the Netherlands. So you're listening today to two folks that have their roots in the Netherlands. Um, we met though in in the US, right? And um, absolutely. Um, actually, I, I attended one of one of the courses that you were teaching at Syracuse University, right? So yeah, um, I hope that um, you will also explain a little bit about you know that the work that you did before you started your own company. Um, but before we go there. Um, Tosca, tell us about, you know, you are from the Netherlands. Are you really born there? Were you born and raised there? And how did you ultimately end up in the U.S.? You know, mm, so, um, yes. Yeah. But okay. Talk us through uh, that. Yes. So, yes, I was born in the, in the Netherlands and I lived there for the first 30 years. Um, so how did I end up in the United States? So um, as many, I started my life, my professional life as a, um, as a, your standard international development practitioner. Mm-hmm. So I had uh, worked a, um, in the Netherlands with an EU-focused think tank, the European Center for Development Policy Management, um, and then went, uh, quote, quote, overseas. I started working in Cambodia um, to with the United Nations um, peacekeeping operation. And then I stayed on to work for UNDP as a consultant and with an American NGO pact. That is, Mm. by the way, during those first five years, I already started working um, with and on the topic of NGOs. Mm -hmm. In uh, Cambodia, at that time, in the only swimming pool in Cambodia in 1992, so not long after the the genocide, of Pol Pot and his regime was right. over. Um, I met my uh, current husband, Jim Bruno, 
And he's an American and he was at that time a, a diplomat. Uh, he had just arrived to open a new American-Cambodian relationships. And so indirectly, via via, I ended up in the United States after having worked in Cambodia, Vietnam, um, shorter period in Laos, and I've also worked in Southern Africa. So I studied um, at the bachelor level, I studied public administration already with a focus on developing countries and then did my master's in international relations and political science uh, with, again, with a focus on what we used to call um, developing countries back then. Mm -hmm. And these days, uh, some people still call global South uh, countries. Um, I did not want to be a do-gooder. That was actually quite important to me. I just wanted to work on a public cause mm -hmm. that was motivating to me. And I wanted to do as high quality work as I could. And I'm saying that because even now in my observations on the sector, etc., the topic of doing good and um, helping, quote unquote, etc., I continue to see reverberate sometimes in a less than helpful way. Although we are also, thankfully, um, questioning that and critiquing that more and more, but maybe we'll get to that. And so I understand that. Um, but then, you know, where did you find that motivation then to, to choose that particular study that you chose? Is it because, you know, your parents were in the same sector? uh you, did you have other family members or you know was oh. the book that you re that you read how, how did that come about none of the above mm -hmm. Morris. Okay. although my father indirectly had something to do with it my father worked at um for most of his 40 years uh that he uh was in the workplace he worked for phillips electronics and um what was really formative for me is that he Around the time I was a tween, let's say in my early teens, um, mm -hmm. he started bringing home occasionally to our small town in the south of the Netherlands. Um, he brought home a foreign colleague. I remember till this day, mm. Indian colleague. I remember an Irish colleague. And those um, discussions around the dinner table in English, when I was practicing my best English at that time, mm -hmm. That really, Morris, sparked my interest to do some kind of an international work. Mm. And when I started with law, um, because I didn't know what else to do after I had um, um, decided not to pursue another direction that I had, had in mind initially, mm -hmm. um, I knew immediately that from law, I wanted to move into public management and public administration, because I was always interested in government and what government can do for society and, and those public causes that I mentioned. And from the beginning, I was interested in the relationships between government act actors and um, nonprofit or non-governmental actors. Do you have brothers and sisters? I have two brothers. I'm the eldest, and mm -hmm. some would say that in my behavior that shows sometimes. So yes, and I'm I have really great brothers. They're mm -hmm. great guys, and I'm very grateful till today that I have such good relationships with my brothers. And and did they where do they work? And were oh. they exposed? Are they the same age? So were they exposed to the 
you know those foreign colleagues of your of your dad as well um, we're all uh, about two uh, years apart so mm -hmm. they definitely were at the same dinner tables they did not at all um um share that interest in that sense although we are all fairly globally minded but mm -hmm. i wouldn't say that we were a typical family of either development workers or mm -hmm. diplomats or relief workers so no it was a little bit uh different than that i will say that both my youngest brother and myself both married a non-dutch person so that mm -hmm. i guess okay. and my father also i should mention my father took um uh, well, he was he was basically allowed by Phillips to take a four year break to um, be a professor at the first private sector university in the Netherlands, um, Nairobi University. And he went to um, um, China uh, during a summer for about nine weeks or so. And I think that was also another kind of little seed that was planted. Yeah. Yeah. OK. No, thanks, thanks for that, uh, Tosca. So let us jump. You know, you met your husband in Nepal, in Cambodia. Yeah. Um, you get married in the States or you get married in Cambodia or, or in Not the Netherlands? In the, officially married in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. um, and we did have, of course, uh, a big party also in the U.S. for those relatives or friends who couldn't make it to the Netherlands. I will say maybe one uh, fun fact about yeah. my wedding is that we actually had a joint wedding of my youngest brother, who I just men okay. mentioned. He is also married to an American. Yeah. And um, so Ivan and I and Jim and Arlene decided to, we both got married in the same year. Mm -hmm. And so we both wanted to have the uh, a big celebration in the Netherlands and we decided to have a combined wedding. So that was a little unusual. Yeah, cool. cool though. So did he end up in the US, living in the US as well? Your they brother? have together never lived in the U.S. They have okay. lived in London and they have uh, since for about 20 years now, they live in the south of the Netherlands where we are from. He actually lives, his house is right across from our high school. Okay. Wow. Yes. But yeah. again, they're also a global or international mm. family. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, then you decide to go uh, to the U.S. Take us through, you know, what happened then? You know, what did you start to do? Well, that was tough, actually, Morris. Mm. Because, uh, so <laughs> long story short. So Jim Bruno, my husband and a now a retired uh, U.S. Uh, diplomat, he and I were still only dating and we were shacking up, if you will, in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. We were living together, but we had not yet decided whether to... Um, get married mm -hmm. and so when we moved together to the u.s because he needed to go back to the u.s um for that first year i did not have the right visa to seek work right i mm -hmm. couldn't work yeah. and um i could have meetings but i was not legally allowed to work so what is also fun is when we finally decided to get married um we first uh did a kind of a, a justice of the peace kind of legal wedding so that the same yeah. afternoon, as soon as the ceremony was over, we drove to the post office mm -hmm. in a remote town of Vermont and and put our my application for a green card in in the mail because the World Bank by then had offered me a job and I had to take that within a certain time frame. Otherwise, they would mm -hmm. have to give up the offer. So after the NGO world, you went to the World Bank. 
Yeah, well, right. at the think tank in the Netherlands, I'd worked on governance issues at the in mm -hmm. in Africa, in governments in Africa, the Caribbean, and yeah. the Pacific. But already, indeed, amongst others, their relationship to non-government actors, how they were interacting. Yes, and then um, I went to the World Bank and I worked two years in its headquarters in mm -hmm. DC yeah. and four years in Vietnam, where I was in charge of. Um, uh, a small team of Vietnamese social scientists and myself working on social development. What was really exciting about um, the time when I entered the World Bank, this was in the mid uh, to late 90s. Mm -hmm. And the World Bank basically um, had decided it needed to become more poverty focused more social development focused and more environmental protection focused. And so I was part of this big wave of social scientists that entered the World Bank to try to change it from within. And this, of course, had happened after much critique had been uh, directed at the World Bank by both academics and analysts, but also by NGOs, obviously. I would like to take the jump to Syracuse University and, and because, you know, that's how we uh, got to know each other. And I, I really enjoyed going to the course, although I had I've forgotten the exact title now. So you will you'll probably remember that. I would like to have two questions for you about that. Is one is how did you end up, you know, as a, a teaching at Syracuse University and you know involved in that uh, course? Um and second why did you decide to leave? Because I, 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 you know, my experience was great. You were a great uh, teacher. The course was wonderful. Thank so, you. Um, yeah, take us through those two. Mm, yeah, that's also kind of interesting. The funny thing is, Morris, um, and I know we Dutch people have a reputation for being sometimes overly planful and structured in our mm -hmm. ways of thinking. And I certainly, I'm afraid I have some of these tendencies. Um so I am very planful, but but actually most of my weaving through sectors, because I've worked in the um, in a think tank, I've mm -hmm. worked in the United Nations, with the United Nations, uh, with um, NGOs, with the World Bank, and now we're going to talk about academia. All of that was completely unplanned. Mm -hmm. So that's always the irony of life. So basically, once um, we had been uh, in Vietnam for four years, and we came back to uh, Jim, my husband is originally from upstate New York. So I don't live in New York City. This mm -hmm. is a very important part of my identity as well. Uh, I live in the rural part of New York State, near the city of Syracuse. Once we decided to live in the center of uh, upstate New York around mm -hmm. Syracuse, it was very quickly clear to me that there would be no work to be had there for an international development practitioner. And so basically, long story short, I my only opportunities for work would be with a local nonprofit that would have been very social work focused. I did not, my expertise and my, my, my experience profile did not match that. I would not be very useful to them. And the other was uh, upstate New York has a number of really good colleges and universities. And I very accidentally uh, ended up being what I call an jokingly an accidental academic at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs, mm -hmm. public management at Syracuse University. And the funny thing is that the Maxwell School is pretty underbranded. So it happens to be already for 20 years in a row consecutively the best 
graduate public management program in the US, according to a very contested, I should say, ranking system, mm -hmm. but judged by other academics in the in the field of public management as the best school. But yet, for instance, the, the Harvard Kennedy School of Government is much better known because mm -hmm. Harvard has a huge brand name, right? But right. the Maxwell School is very good. So I just accidentally ended up there through some networking that I did and ended up more than 10 years there. So what I did there is, is three or four things. One is you mentioned teaching. Yes, I did uh, teach at the graduate um, uh, level and I liked that very much, although teaching is also scary. Um, and I initiated research and as well as contributed to research. Some of that research was almost consulting-like, was very practitioner-focused uh, and meant to be of use to practitioners and actual NGOs, because the initiative that I led there was called the Transnational NGO Initiative. And we focused on three things. One, the NGO always being the unit of analysis, meaning the organization of the NGO, not the content of what it worked on programmatically, but the, the organization being the unit of analysis. So leadership development and effectiveness, governance and organizational effectiveness. So besides the, the teaching that I mentioned and the research, um, our mission was to be directly relevant to practitioners. Mm -hmm. And so that practitioner-facing piece consisted of two things, and you experienced one of them. So that was a senior leadership training program. We ran about 22 of those. One was an open enrollment program out of Syracuse, and you were one of our um, uh, alumni. And uh, another set of programs were custom-built for a group of big global um, NGOs, so ActionAid International, Greenpeace International, Amnesty International, um, and uh, Oxfam International, and later Civicus also joined. Um, we delivered for them seven years in a row also a program. So that was a, that's how you and I met. And the other part... Um, that was practitioner facing was on change management. So four big um, NGOs, Save the Children, Oxfam, CARE, and Amnesty International asked us to help them uh, doing it by doing an external assessment of what was the effectiveness with which these big NGOs both led and managed organizational change processes, pretty big organizational change mm -hmm. processes. And that is why change management became one of my um, all times favorite uh, topics. And within that, I love the topic of organizational culture. And I think I'm a little bit of a geek on that. So that's basically the body of work that uh, I contributed to there. Also, we did student advising, of course, and student programming. So we brought NGO leaders like yourself and others to campus for students to um interview and to offer speaking engagements. We also had a visiting fellow program. Then after 10 years, you do a scary thing because you, you're you leaving, you know, a, a, a job where everything is taken care of, right? Because, you know, you're, you know how to run successful courses. Uh, you are in an institution, so in that sense, you're uh, protected. Then you decide to yeah. start your own company. So uh, why and how is that going? 
Okay, why and how's it going? So first of all, I was ready for change. I am somebody who likes to be challenged by change regularly. I don't always find it easy, by the way, and definitely sometimes scary, including what I'm doing now. Um, but at the same time, I need change. Um, and I had I realized I had both after at that time about 26 years or so of relevant experience, I thought I was ready to be an advisor to senior leaders and managers. And at the same time, so while I had worked in a think tank, United Nations, World Bank, NGO, and academia, I had never worked in the private sector. And now I have to run my own little business. And honestly, Morris, when I started four years ago, I knew nothing about how to run a business, mm -hmm. but I learned on the job. And that learning is so stimulating for me. Mm -hmm. So I, I do not regret it for an instance. I will say it's not for the faint of heart. Mm -hmm. But then still you could go for starting a company with somebody else. You you decided to do it by yourself, right? Is that correct or, or not? That is, that is yeah. correct. I do have uh, a number of collaborators, mm -hmm. right? Okay. But they are not employees. And some of these collaborators I work with on a more or less permanent though part-time okay. in a permanent though very part-time capacity. But yes, I I I wanted to have uh I wanted to enjoy the autonomy and the mm -hmm. freedom to shape this small company Five Oaks Consulting uh in my own way and therefore also having to learn a whole bunch of things uh on my own. I definitely was not interested and I'm still not interested to join a big consulting company. Okay. Um, although, you know, a lot of marketing people have explained to me that, you know, the, the elevator pitch doesn't exist anymore, um, you know, but I'm still asking you to, you know, when we would be in the elevator and you, I ask you to explain about what your company has to offer and, and what you're passionate about to, to explain that to me, you know, within that time frame. So, okay. Okay. I'll give it a go. So I help senior leaders of mm -hmm. nonprofits. INGOs and philanthropic uh, organizations turbocharge their ability to lead dramatic and useful change. I do that in four ways. Mm -hmm. um, I offer, not surprisingly, senior leadership development support. So whether that is um, leadership training, as we've discussed, whether that is individual coaching or uh, my new capability in team coaching that I hope we will get to talk about. The second offering is change management advice. I mentioned that. The third offering is governance reviews and or organizational effectiveness reviews. And the fourth offering is um, facilitation. You wrote a book called uh, Between Power and Irrelevance, the Future of Transnational NGOs, together with Hans-Peter Schmitz and George Mitchell. Um, how do I need to see or how do we need to see that book in relation to your uh, organization? Ah, okay. So that's a good question. Yes. Yeah, so first of all, very important to say that I am only one of the three mm -hmm. co-authors of this book and that Hans-Peter Schmitz and George uh, Mitchell did a lot more of the um the final drafting mm -hmm. of the book because they are simply better writers than I am. That book, by the way, is published by uh, Oxford University Press. Mm -hmm. Also important to mention, and it was published in 2020, 
important to mention also Barney Talek. He is another practitioner like myself, a very well-known um, in Europe um, when it comes to change strategy uh, and a number of other topics. And he was a contributor to some of our, our chapters. So basically, Morris, that book is, is the product of 15 years of Hans-Peter, George, and I collaborating at Syracuse University. Okay. Um, and so we collected a lot of data, but not just classical kind of data that researchers might think of, but as much direct observations from practitioners, because I interviewed hundreds, probably five, six hundred NGO leaders. Um, I um, We did the consulting uh, assignments that I mentioned uh, on change management. The 22 or so senior leadership training programs gave us a lot of of uh, qualitative information, yeah, how yeah. leaders talk about change, right? And about leadership and about governance, et cetera. And all of that data and more data also coming from interaction CEOs and so on and so on was all captured in that, that book. So we started writing that book um, towards the end of my 10 plus years at Syracuse University. And we finished it um, in the summer of 2019. So it, that's important to understand that the manuscript was delivered to the publisher a full year before the pandemic and a full year before okay. uh, George Floyd's murder and mm -hmm. all the attention that went um, subsequently to, once again, to anti-racism, decolonizing aid, to diversity, equity, and inclusion, etc. What is the main argument you make in the book? And I should say the book is primarily drawing on data um, from Global North-founded NGOs. Okay. There is mention, there is some data on Global South-founded NGOs, but that was not the core of our, our uh, expertise. So the main argument in the book is, um, and I'm going to have to summarize, so it's going to sound maybe a little bit um, um, unnuanced, but um, that our sector of INGOs, not just in the US, importantly, but in many countries, though not necessarily all, mm -hmm. that the institutional form of the NGO is still based in the legal form of the charity that NGOs are still charity organizations, right? And that therefore we are still embedded in a charity arch architecture that comes with legacy structures and belief systems and practices that actually um, limit our ability to adapt to our aspirations as INGOs that have expanded a lot because we started, as you know, historically, many of us started as purely focused on material improvement of people's lives, right? Kind of what we what we originally mean by charity. And gradually we've expanded our aspirations to go to uh, human needs approaches, then rights-based approaches, at least some have adopted that, all the way now to focus on systems and structures and on power and so on. And we argue in the book that both are the, the legal form of the charity as it is embedded in um, laws in many countries and the norms, both the societal expectations and donor expectations and government expectations um, and the um, inner culture of the NGOs will never allow us to live up to our 
expanded uh, aspirations and mm. unless we make some changes i would say that's the, mm. the core uh, argument okay. and i'm taking a small step back because you said in the beginning you know the book was written or the manuscript was finished mm -hmm. uh, before the pandemic kicked in before george floyd so um is it then can I then expect that if you would write an updated version of the book um, now, mm -hmm. 2023, uh, taking into account the pandemic, what happened here in the US around George Floyd, and actually that had a kind of a replicating effect within the whole world. I would say um, so. As well. And then the third part is um, NGOs. Our sector is changing. So especially there are a lot of NGOs that are now led by the younger generation, the next generation, millennials and centennials. And I kind of assume that they are not following that, you know, that traditional structure of, of the charity. Um, I don't know if, if I'm correct. So I would like to hear from you what your opinion is that about that. But okay, the question is, you know, would you the three of you or the four of you, would you, you know, are you planning to rewrite a book or come up with an extra chapter, you know, knowing what you know now? I'm I'm smiling because as it happens, <laughs> yes. as it happens, we are in the very early stages of discussing okay. the possibility. Yeah. I am grateful to say that the book has uh, sold fairly well, mm -hmm. uh, especially um, um, by, has been um, bought by um, leaders and managers in our sectors, not just by professors or students for graduate school. And so we are considering, yes, whether we will um, try to go for a second edition. And you bet that we will be focusing on, on all those uh, aspects that you mentioned. Maybe, uh, and we would expand also, there was a chapter on change management that we had written and in which, uh, to which um, Barney Talek also made an important contribution. And regretfully, our editors decided to not include that book. Anyway, that we would like to bring back that uh, chapter if we can. Of course, we need to find either our existing publisher and find out if they're interested in a second edition or whether, uh, if not, whether we contractually then uh, have the, the ability to go to, to a different uh, publisher. But yes, we are discussing that. Okay. I didn't know that just for the listeners. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's, good to, that's good to hear, Tosca. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I alluded to what I see is our sector is, is definitely changing. You know, you described it as well, that we actually have to change. And there are several factors for that. Um, and then you talked about uh, teams. Team co and team coaching. Team, yes, team, yeah. Yeah, team coaching. So, um, yeah, can you tell a bit about, um, you know, that's, that's something that's a service that you have. Uh, that you can offer and why is that important in this changing NGO sector mm, mm, good point may I just for a moment go back to what you said about um, post millennials and yeah sure yeah just for a moment because I do want our listeners to know that in the chapter on digital strategies and tactics we're actually already in the current edition the first edition we are um, uh, paying attention to how the 
how the expectations of post millennials mm-hmm. um, and their uh, attachment to organizations have really changed to in- organizations, including NGOs. Mm-hmm. So basically, when it comes to uh, fundraising, as well as through doing advocacy and campaigning, Generation um, Y and Z in particular, their, their allegiance, their attachment, their emotional attachment to nonprofits of any kind is much weaker than that of baby boomers. We know that from the research. Mm-hmm. We also know that even their attachment or allegiance to causes, though stronger than to organizations, is more fickle than before. And so uh, some NGOs more than others have figured out that the way in which they communicate with these younger generations really has to become a two-way conversation, not a one-way broadcast, and that they have to go with the flow in terms of um, post-millennials wanting to take action in society on their own terms, not in a way that is prescribed by by NGOs. I'll stop there, but I just wanted to make yeah, that, yeah. that is included in the book. Okay, that's, that's great. And we might, I, I did not mention that, you know, you make sure that uh, the book with the link where you can buy the book um, will be mentioned in the podcast notes because I really think if you're a, even a little slightly interested in in the topics that are being addressed within this podcast, you definitely should read this book. That's what I think. Um, the other thing what I would like to mention, Tosca, is um, for those listeners and, and for you, if you did not listen to the episode with Case Klomp, not because he is also from the Netherlands, <laughs> but just because I think he has an interesting view on, on what is necessary um, in this world today. But he, um, you know, he, he's saying that we, we need to look at existential economics, um, that the problem that we are, uh, have in this world has to do with, um, you know, that we are still driven by, um, you know, the GDPs and, you know, uh, financial growth. And we need mm. to look at, at thriving. Mm. Now, he, he he explains also in the podcast with me and in his lectures, actually, that you can find online, is that centennials are driven by purpose and millennials are driven by um, uh, by meaning. So and but they can come together in their actions, but they are driven, you know, the start is different. So anyway, I, I would I would really um I I often say to people that they should check out that episode because I, I really like um what he's you know he's he's trying to say. It's very much in line with mm. uh the donut uh economics from, from Kate Got uh, Revers. Got it. I will definitely listen to that, Morris. Great. <laughs> I hope the other listeners as well. Hey, uh, Tosca, um, I would like slowly to go to the second part of, of the conversation that I always have, because you know that this podcast is a spin-off of my 100-mile walk. But I want to make sure that we addressed, you know, at least some of the main things that we oh, wanted yeah. to address in terms of your team coaching. company and your team coaching and your book. So it's... it's uh, yeah, I yeah. think book and my company we have we have um spoken enough about if people want okay. to find out more about me, I, I trust that you have the, the relevant links in, in the show mm-hmm. notes. So we're not gonna talk about that. I wanted to say something about why I was motivated to um, uh, recently graduate in a program uh, uh in a training program on team coaching. And okay. that training program is uh 
uh, is with Corentus, that is C-O-R-E-N-T-U-S, based out of Boston here in the U.S., but definitely a global company. And so they are uh, specializing in team coaching, and they also offer professional development in, in team coaching. Why do I think it's important? Because I think, um, so I do a little bit of individual coaching, although I should say very transparently, I am not certified in, in, in individual coaching. But a lot of organizational effectiveness issues have as much to do or lack thereof or limitations thereof um, have as much, if not more to do with the fact that I see in the NGO sector quite a bit of underperformance at the team level. So what do I see? And again, I'm going to be a little bit kind of, you know, unnuanced, but kind of kind mm -hmm. of a couple of bullet points. I see a, a misunderstanding in our sector around what's the difference between a work group and a team. Mm -hmm. right? Teams are ideally not bigger than somewhere between five to seven, at most 10 people. So I see the word team kind of being thrown around fairly mm -hmm. sloppily by leaders when they say, oh, I have a team of 30 people. Well, that would not be a team. That would be at most a work group. What makes teams a team is that they are, uh, they produce interdependent products or programs or outcomes right so they are interdependent on each other they need each other to together um, produce uh, common outcomes and joint um, uh, products or outcomes or outputs they need to be mutually accountable and I see a fair amount of lack of behaviors that 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 actually do indicate that people understand in a team they need to be mutually accountable I see a fair amount of low quality of decision-making, by which I mean um, uh, lowest hanging uh, common denominators, right? Lowest hanging fruit and, and uh, kind of the dive towards the, the most common uh, denominators. I see a lot of attempt to, uh, to go around and around trying to get to consensus in a not too um, um, a skillful way. I also see a lack of understanding that sometimes either um, other forms of decision-making, whether it's authority or authority with consultation, to give you one example, may produce both better quality decision-making, but also much more agile and adaptive and responsive mm -hmm. um, decision-making than I see in our sector. So I see a lack of um, creativity in how we discuss things in meetings, uh, very often open discussion in, in instead of other uh, modes of, of co-creating, if you will. Um, I see a lot of bad meeting management. I see an over-indexing on meetings, meaning we overuse meetings instead of using um, asynchronous um, forms of communication. So all of these things, and of course, there is the issue of in, uh, inclusion or lack of inclusion, not feeling respected, uh, lack of diversity, both of identity, but also of perspective. So all of those things made me um, motivated to um, get trained up in in, uh, in team coaching. And I'm glad to say I am now um, have just graduated and I'm really excited to offer that to our sector. That's a long answer. Yeah, so. I know that, that actually is really exciting. Three quick 
uh, mm -hmm. questions around it. Um, one is, will you write a book about this? Um, Not second, planning to. <laughs> okay. It sounds interesting to me, uh, Tosca. So uh, second is, where can people find more information? Should they just go to your website, you know, and send you an email to, to understand what you have to offer? And, you know, and how they can sign up or, you know, have start conversations with you about their organizations or about themselves. And then the third part is, I really think we should make a special uh, podcast episode about this. So, um, sure, if you think it's of interest. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's, it's definitely of, of, of uh, interest. So, yeah. Okay, so in terms of, no, I'm definitely not thinking of writing a book because I, that would be pretty presumptuous mm -hmm. um i only just was trained in the uh the kind of the not just the basics but also the more intensive form of training in in team coaching so i definitely don't want to presume that i can write a book about it i'm really um uh, listening a lot to my colleagues at Corentus. they've asked me if i'm interested to become a core practitioner in their practice for part of my time and i very happily said yes because i love mm -hmm what I experienced as a trainee at Corentus. And so I am, what I just presented to you is partially drawn of their intellectual property, their concepts, their frameworks, mm -hmm. et cetera. Where can people find out more about this particular offer? Yes, they can go to my website and contact me through that. They can send me an email and I trust that you'll put these things in the, mm -hmm. in the show note. Uh, or they can uh, contact me, for instance, through LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And so just direct message me there and I'll be happy to send you also a description of what we can offer as uh, Five Oaks Consulting, including on team coaching. Great. And let me also take this moment to, you know, talking about podcasts, of course, you should continue to listen to this podcast, but you should also check out the podcast that Tosca have, have, uh, have done and, and many are, if not all, are really, really interesting. You know that this podcast is a spin-off of a 100-mile walk that I've been doing since 2012. Uh, to raise funds and awareness around hunger, poverty, and injustice. And then, you know, during the pandemic, I was not able to be accompanied by co-walkers. So then I, I, you know, I came up with the concept of virtual walk. Right. And then this, this got a little bit out of hand. Um, <laughs> so I'm still doing it and it's a lot of fun to, to do. Um, the question that I always ask to my guest, if you would be asked to, one, to walk 100 miles in a week, you know, mm. or five to seven days, um, for which course would you walk? And, you know, yeah, and of, of And why? Yeah, of course, a very hard question. There would be quite a few, but I'll just pick one. Mm -hmm. So as I told you before, I live in a rural part of New York State, right? Yeah. About five hours west of New York City. And so for me, the cause of the positive impact when... Uh, so particularly upstate New York traditionally has been inhabited by um, um, immigrants and from historically I'm talking about from European countries. So outside New York City and outside the bigger cities of Buffalo, Syracuse and um, Rochester, a lot of the countryside is fairly white. We have seen a number of really important positive impacts from the arrival over the last couple of decades of refugees and other 
forms of recent immigrants. And so what is close to my heart mm -hmm. is not just the kind of justice aspect of that, of welcoming yeah. refugees and recent immigrants into um, our area, but actually that we are the ones who are benefiting most from that because from both from an economic revitalization perspective, mm -hmm. right? So I, I live in part of what sometimes is called the post-industrial depressed kind of Northeast of the US. Recent refugees and immigrant generations have brought a lot of economic revitalization. They have made our region a lot more diverse. They have enhanced the quality of life through the business they start, the, the restaurants, everything. Hmm. It's so important for us that um, we have, um, quote unquote, welcomed those um multiple generations of refugees and so in the current climate in the u.s where there is so much of polarization and of the the othering of people who are different from us yeah. i think the argument that actually we are the ones who are most benefiting is a really important one to make especially when we see sometimes voters who think that the opposite Right. No, th thank you for that. And I, I do think you're you're touching on touching upon a very you know a current and relevant uh, uh, topic. Yeah. And, and let's hope that uh, you know this country will continue to grow, um, and where we see less polarization. And you know, you talked about uh, interdependency within your teams. And yeah, I I think as a world we we. Uh, realize for a moment that we are all interdependent during COVID, but then yeah. as soon as certain people got access to vaccine, we forgot about that and we only you know focused on ourselves and on our own communities. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, you know, walking is is for me and I think for many um you know a kind of a spiritual experience. And 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 especially <laughs> if you have to walk 15 to 20 miles a day. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you get pain in your, in your joints and you ask yourself, why do you do this? And, you know, what, what drives me anyway? And um, yeah. so I often talk about uh, religion and spirituality with my co-workers. And then very quickly, you know, the topic of what is happening with the younger generation. So I'm fascinated by that because some people are saying, you know, they are less religious, and uh, but they're still spiritual. There are a lot of opinions about it. Um, although I'm slowly, you know, through through this particular podcast, I'm trying to get a little bit more grip on this. But what do you see happening among youth in your com community around religion and spirituality? So just at a very personal level. So I am I was raised uh, as a Catholic mm -hmm. and um, I I have the experience that it, once you're raised as a Catholic, you will never completely not be a Catholic, right? Won't go into that, but it was um, in some ways important to me, though more from a, a kind of, um, a, let's say, you know, pushing back against the hierarchy in Rome, etc. But in my personal life now, I am a Unitarian, 
and I feel much more at home there because of the fact that Unitarianism and um, is not about dogmas. It's not about hierarchy and institutions, but it's about you figuring out for yourself what both your values are, your spiritual um, thoughts and belief systems are, etc. It's a very free thinking and fairly, I will say, mm, quote unquote intellectual form of spirituality that therefore is also populated by by a whole bunch of primarily white uh highly educated liberals and that has its its real limitations i have to say so that's at a personal level um some of my work is definitely with faith-based organizations i think faith-based ngos have enormous assets and for instance the trust that through their networks of whether it's mosques or temples or churches, their wide networks of of um, of those religious houses, if you will, at the local level, gives them enormous amount of trust uh, within the local population that a lot of secular organizations, frankly, would die for, mm. um, and and would covet. Um, and at the same time, many people in this world are still either religious or at least spiritual. And we here in the global North tend to kind of forget that. As you know, here in the US too, uh, secularization is slowly but very significantly increasing. Mm -hmm. um, I cannot comment on the Netherlands anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, those are a couple of, of thoughts. And if I have to link to youth, I will say there are some things that are now used, in my view, as like in a semi-religious manner, like if you think about the well-being movement mm -hmm. and yoga, for instance, or all the non-scientific um, aspects of the well-being industry, some people seem to have taken this up as a new spirituality or form of religion, which then in my mind perhaps signals the fact that we all as human beings need a purpose and we need a higher form of transcendence and so if we don't find it in in institutionalized religion we go and look for it elsewhere when i was listening to you i was thinking about connection um you know the the, uh, the desire of you know humans to be part of a community to be connected with others absolutely um so I, that's that's what I hope this podcast is also doing: connect people to you know to open themselves up to other perspectives, and you know and and maybe then even start a dialogue with people that have another perspective. And I really think that's necessary. You, you talked maybe 10, 15 minutes in about you know the polarization that's happening um, not only in this country but in the world. Yeah. So. I have a question always where I try to, you know, more intentionally connect you with the previous guest. Um, and the, the question of the previous guest for you is. So my question for the next guest is, um, who is the one person in your professional network whose opinion you want to change? Why? And how are you going to do it? And they don't have to reveal the name of the person, but I think going back to your comment, Maurice, about the IDGs, right? And about one person having an impact, 
I truly believe in that as well. So you start with one person. Who is that one person who you think is so important that they understand your work or your mission or your your drive or your project who doesn't believe in it today? How would you engage with them to change their mind? Mm, the last question is, is the hardest probably. Okay, so asked me to talk about the book before I told you that the book is published by Oxford University Press. Oxford University Press is one of the probably two or three top academic presses in the world, right? So it's very renowned amongst um, academics. I told you that we had written and wanted to include a chapter on change management that was mo- that was the chapter most heavily informed by purely by practitioner perspectives. Barney Telex and mine, right? That was the one chapter that the four peer reviewers in a double-blind review of the book manuscript um, critiqued the most. That was the chapter that was based on practitioner knowledge, not so much on uh, academic or research data knowledge, Mm -hmm. but two practitioners who collectively at that point had about 60 years of relevant practitioner experience. So I would really, that was very difficult experience for me Mm -hmm. because that is about whose knowledge counts, Mm -hmm. right? And we know that that discourse is also happening when it comes to, for instance, indigenous knowledge, the knowledge of Global South NGOs, right? Whose knowledge counts is, is is a very hot topic right now in the international development world and has been actually on and off for quite a bit longer. But I would have liked to change the mind of those peer reviewers and ultimately the editor who decided to pull that very chapter. And you know what? One of the most common when people tell me, I like the book, it's useful, it's good, and I'm missing a chapter on change and change management. And we have to say the irony is that that was the one that was cut, right? So how would I persuade PhD level reviewers um, um, that practitioner knowledge when it's across many sources of and tra- therefore triangulated, right? And over a lot of years of experience, why that would not have the same status? That's that's what uh, what I would like to change. I think we can primarily only uh, change anybody's view if we start with ourselves, but also if we start by sitting down face-to-face, ideally, and first asking a lot of questions to the person to, to find out how they're thinking, where they're coming from, and then see, see can we find common ground. So a lot more use of inquiry, of asking questions, being curious to learn, than to make statements. Yeah. No, thank you for, the, for, for that. And, and for me... Um, you know, the listeners know that I often talk, uh, I try to touch upon, you know, the dance between uh, the I, the we, the it and its perspective, or, you know, some would say the arts, religion and, and science. I, I think that this is the dance, you know, what's, what's ha- often happening. And, and um, I have a question to you later about the inner development goals. I, I think that's also related with what you just lifted up. Okay, your question for... Um, the next guest 
Oh my Lord, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> I did not think of that. What? Uh, okay, I'll just try something. Um, uh, let me see, how am I going to say this? Um, whether we talk about, well, let's say, assuming we are still talking about the, the unit of analysis being either nonprofits, philanthropies, or INGOs, right? Where does our next speaker see the biggest gap between the espoused values, meaning the, the, the values that those nonprofits and NGOs say they are all about, and their real actions, habits, and behaviors? So where is that gap the biggest? And what is, what is the result? What, 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 what do we see as, a, as an implication of that? What do you think? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question, but I don't have to answer it. So <laughs> my, my, my next guest will. Um, so thanks, uh, Tosca. Hey, um, my listeners uh, know my, my favorite question is, because music is so important to me, um is is the following question and if i ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song um that best embodies for the big part tosca is about which piece of music or song would that be and why yeah so i also was completely not ready for for that question <laughs> and i i i'm just an average listener to music um i'm going to mention uh, a song that I uh, always enjoy listening to, uh, including when I go to the dentist as a way of soothing myself. Um, and it's a song by Carly si Simon called You're So Vain. Now, I'm hoping it's I'm hoping our listeners are not going to think, oh, she must think that she herself is vain. I would like to think that I'm not vain, that I have enough um, of a sense of uh, humility, etc. Um, but to me, that song, somehow the spirit of the song embodies for me something about strong women, strong women who, uh, are very resilient, who challenge, who stand up, um, but also do it in a way where they're not constantly in a coping behavior like, okay, yes, I can handle this too. I can handle this too. I can handle, you know, keep stacking um, challenges on top because that's not, it's not very resilient. It's not sustainable and it's not healthy. So that's going to be my pick. Okay, great. Thank you for that. And we'll add that to the Spotify playlist that we have made. Uh, if you go to Spotify and you search for hashtag walk, talk, listen, you will find all the songs that were picked by our guests. Oh, fun! And, you know, that's that. from classical music to you know reggae, hard rock, and now Carly Simon will be added as well. Um, uh, Tosca, I mean, even before I became the chief sustainability and impact officer of my organization, sustainability, the the, the sustainable development goals were really important. Mm. I have always two questions around this, but I will. I'm asking you only one part of it. Um, I think a, a week or two ago, you know, another report came out that we are not, that we are lacking, that we are behind of reaching the sustainable development goals, um, you know, and, and the war and, and COVID are different reasons that are mentioned in that particular report. Um, however, there is also a growing group of people 
in the world that is saying, you know, one of the reasons that we're lacking behind has to do with that we have never paid or we are not paying enough sufficient attention to the ability, skills and knowledge that we need as individuals and communities and organizations. Mm-hmm. And they did, you know, a, a little research. And as a result of that research, they came up with the inner development goals. So there are five goals. Um, they are uh, being, thinking, relating, collaborating and action. I, we don't have to make this, you know, too complex because I, I, you know, we could do another podcast about it. I just want like to have your quick, you know, uh, reaction on what are your thoughts if you hear this in a development goals. Yeah, so I had never heard uh, about the inner development mm-hmm. goals till till you told me just before we started recording. So I'm just going to give you some off the cuff uh, mm-hmm. comments. Being very very important, obviously, right? And the Buddha and Buddhism and, and mindfulness have have I think by now amply uh, taught taught us that. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, absolutely no question uh, about that. Relating. We, by now, we all know that emotional intelligence um, is very important. So it doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't, for instance, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the other person perceives, right? We, that is also very important for influencing, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking, uh, just a quick, uh, sometimes I'm going to pull this back into the NGO sector for a moment and see if if this makes sense to you. I think in the NGO sector, often we seem to think that we can think our way out of an issue. So to give you an example, diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Mm -hmm. So a number of NGOs in their actions, the fact that they focus in their DEI initiatives on things like um, um, training, all kinds of forms of, of training, right? Unconscious bias, et cetera, et cetera, on book groups, on discussions. In other words, we tend to invest when we want to get better in the field of DEI, we tend to invest in our individual and in our organizations, in our staff's cognitive capacity, the thinking. But actually, when you look at the neuroscience on how people really move engage in action which is also one of the inner development goals as you told me um we see in the neuroscience that actually people don't start with thinking and then from thinking go to action no people start with actions they're prompted in this case by the ngo through organizational systems and processes and uh, and culture they're prompted to engage in habits behaviors and actions that actually then over time influence how we think about it. So action leads to changes in thinking. Much more than thinking leads to um to to different actions. Does that make sense? I'm struck by how I think we don't we're not fully aware of how mm-hmm. human beings really what moves them. Yeah. Um, is it is it also part going back to to the team? Mm. Is it going back to to um, you know because you when we were talking about the teams mm-hmm. um, about you know interdependence and um, um, mutual accountability you know, yeah and and culture within the team mm. and, and um, yeah so how you experience that uh, 
Yeah, so okay. The question is, is, is does that play a role in what you, you know, when you address team dynamics and and mm -hmm. and uh, what you just explained? Mm -hmm. Well, it, to the extent that, so for instance, um, team um, practices, mm -hmm. whether it is how you run a meeting, who you defer to in a meeting, in a meeting, who you give higher importance, if you will, um, how teams organize their work all of these day-to-day -day, maybe very boring but day-to-day -day, um, processes and systems for a team will also affect how people interact with each other and how they start to think about each other for instance right so for instance to give you an example if um, a lot of people seem to think in our sector that we need to brainstorm in a synchronous, in a live meeting about something to get to rich thinking, right? Mm -hmm. but actually, more and more research indicates that you it's better, it's more creative to start with brain writing, where everybody first writes individually mm -hmm. about a certain challenge, for instance, or an answer to a question. And then people bring that together and they start kind of comparing and enriching that material so going from brain writing to meeting in a group these kind of very mundane practices um can actually change how we think and how we feel about each other in the team does this make sense yeah yeah interesting because for a couple of you know conversations and meetings i first do a um oh a mentimeter where people you know you ask them to write yeah, poll. exactly. Mm -hmm. So, and, and it does help. Yes. Um, I, I have to say that. Yeah, very interesting. Hey, um, Tosca, I mean, these conversations always go very fast. I still have two or three uh, questions. I would like you to answer maybe, you know, tweet-wise. So that means okay. you don't have to stick to the 144 characters, but, you know, rather rather quickly. Yeah. Um, the first one is about uh, a message, invitation, or question for the listeners. Constantly check for yourself whether your habits, behaviors, and actions are reflecting what you say your values are. Your daily habits, behaviors, and action, actions. I don't mean that in a, in a holy way, right? In a wagging the finger, but uh, I think that's a useful practice. If I ask you now, right now, on the spot... Uh to commit one simple act of kindness, you know, what you will do this week, what will you do? Gosh, so many I could think of, but I'll just say one is truly listen to a person instead of thinking what your next answer is going to be, what you will say next. Very hard. What is the thing or the issue what worries you most at the moment? Worries me most. Um, besides climate change. Um, the othering of people who are um, unlike you in whatever which way. And that, by the way, happens on all sides of the political spectrum. The, the othering. Where do you see hope? I do think when it comes, you mentioned before kind of uh, simplistic uh, ways of looking at things like economic growth, you know, GDP, etc. I do think that uh, not only do we have now more instruments for measuring at the national and global level well-being, 
right? But I do think that also here in the US, which is, for instance, a pretty workaholic culture compared to Europe, where you and I both come from, I do think that there is a growing awareness that we need to be more, I don't know, I don't like the word holistic, but um, but a, a more holistic form of measuring what thrive, you use the word thriving, what, what that means. I do think that across generations, and even to some extent across the political divide, that is increasing. Any question that I should have asked you? You've asked me a lot already, and we've talked a lot, a long time, I think way too long, so no. Okay. Uh, yeah, th thank you so much, Tosca, for, for your willingness to talk with me today, for everything you do. I, I really encourage the listeners to check you know, out your website, to check out the book, to check out the podcast. Um, I always learn a lot of talking with you. Um, Thank you. So yeah, really, really thank you and and good luck. Thank you. I I'll need it. And thank you so much, Morris. This was such a um, lively and also for me an enriching discussion. You asked some really good questions that make me think. That make me think again. And uh, the way you um, hosted this podcast is is uh, gives me new ideas for my podcast as well. So thank you for allowing me to learn from you. Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.